Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome back to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Our summer hiatus is now over, and veteran Vatican correspondent Gerard O'Connell and I are back to bring you an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. There are some big things happening in Rome this week. First off, Pope Francis made 20 new cardinals on Saturday, including San Diego Bishop Robert McElroy. McElroy was one of 20 new cardinals from around the world who were installed earlier today at the Vatican by Pope Francis. The next day, the Pope traveled to the central Italian town of L'Aquila, where he became the first Pope in more than 700 years to open the holy door of the L'Aquila Basilica. And he sparked resignation rumors by visiting the tomb of the first Pope to voluntarily resign, Celestine V. Now, this news immediately ignited a wave of speculation, not just here in Rome, but also in the press and social media around the globe. Finally, on Monday and Tuesday of this week, Pope Francis is meeting with the world's cardinals for a very unusual and secretive meeting to study his reforms to the central governance of the Vatican. Now, what's on the agenda? How significant is that? They're supposed to talk about some church reforms. But really the reason this is significant is because that long time since they've gotten together before and because of those swirling rumors now of a potential papal resignation. Will Pope Francis resign? I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from a hot and humid Rome, Colleen. 31 degrees here. Exact same here. It is a busy, busy week in Rome. I'm really excited to be back on talking with you. And I don't know if you realize this, this is our fifth season of Inside the Vatican. Wow, we're getting old. I know. <laughs> We've been doing this since 2018. I think I think we're getting pretty good at it. No, I, I'm very happy to be back. There are a lot of things to talk about. I mean, we've had in the past, we've had uh, conclaves in the month of August. Now, there are some people who were thinking that this week might also bring a conclave, that it could bring the resignation of Pope Francis. We are recording this on Tuesday, August 30th uh, in the Roman afternoon, American morning. And so far, no such resignation has happened. I don't think they're good at reading tea leaves. <laughs> well, we know that you are because you predicted Francis becoming the Pope. Yes, I've never believed that uh, resignation was on the cards at this time. Francis had made very clear he is not thinking of resignation right now. Mm -hmm. He said, we don't know what tomorrow brings, but today it's not in his mind. Yeah, there is a confluence of events happening in Rome this week that had kind of sparked a lot of this resignation talk. The first is that the Pope moved up the consistory to create new cardinals and created some new cardinals in August. 
Then he went to visit the tomb of Celestine V, who was the first pope to voluntarily resign. And that had been a big, you know, reading the tea leaves moment when Pope Benedict went and visited the tomb also. And then he also is having this big meeting of all the cardinals in Rome this week where they're talking about his curia reform. So a lot going on that had made people think he could be resigning. We're going to talk about each of those events one by one. First up, the consistory. And Jerry, if I'm not mistaken, you haven't missed one of these in like 20-something years, right? Yes, for a quarter of a century or more, I think I haven't missed a consistory. It's, it's always a very important moment in the life of the church mm-hmm. because the Pope is selecting the men who will choose his successor and one of whom will be his successor. Right. So Pope Francis held a consistory for creating new cardinals on Saturday, and he gave 20 men the red cardinal's hat. And as we've said, a cardinal's most important job is electing the next pope. 16 of the 20 that Pope Francis made cardinals this weekend are under age 85 and so are able to choose his successor. And we've talked on the show before, I'll link to a previous episode where we went into depth about who these men are and some of the most interesting folks. But just to recap, Pope Francis elevated the first cardinal from the Amazon region, the first cardinal working in Mongolia, also the first cardinal from India's lowest caste, the Dalits, which really gave a boost to Christian resistance against the caste system. And then within the Vatican, Pope Francis also promoted the top bishop in the Vatican's liturgy office, who has been in the news because he's been spearheading the implementation of Pope Francis's limitations on the pre-Vatican II Mass. So we're seeing this continuation of Pope Francis kind of broadening the global diversity, the, the geographic diversity of the College of Cardinals. But Jerry, I wanted to ask you, we have an American audience listening to the show, obviously. So we have a new cardinal from the Diocese of San Diego, Cardinal Robert McElroy. And I was wondering if you could just give us a little background on him and what, what his weekend was like. Well, his appointment was really, I think, a surprise in some circles. I was not personally surprised. He studied in Harvard, Stanford, and the Gregorian University. His academic background is really deeply impressive, but he's also an extraordinary pastoral cardinal who, as Bishop of San Diego, has held synods in in his own diocese, which have gone very well. He's one of the bishops in the United States who really is in sync with Pope Francis's thinking. His vision of the church he shares completely, very strong on the environmental question very strong on against polarization in the church, very strong on supporting uh, the outreach, the missionary dimension of the church, g- giving greater space in the church to women. So he's very much a Francis mind and thinking bishop. So he came here at the United States Embassy to the Holy See. They offered a reception for him one day this week. And uh, Then on Saturday, the Pope gave him the red hat, and that was a big moment. Cardinal McElroy said to me that uh, all the kind of moments of his life seemed to come together because a lot of people came to be with him on this particular day from different moments of his life. His mother, who is 97, watched on television from her home in California. And uh, he said, of course, she would love to have come, but the travel by air would just have been too much for her. 
Jerry, you mentioned how this is a, a really celebratory moment. That was kind of contrasted, at least in my reading, with Pope Francis's choice of the gospel for this Mass. So it wasn't the gospel for the day. He specifically chose this. And it was just a two-sentence gospel. It's Jesus saying to his disciples, I have come to bring fire to the earth and how I wish it were blazing already. There is a baptism I must still receive and how great is my distress till it is over. I mean, that is intense. And it comes in the middle of Jesus's discourse about how families will be divided. What, what do you make of the Pope's choice of this reading for this Mass? Well, it's very significant. He, he really said, you know, you're here to be missionaries, fiery mission. He spoke about the fiery mission that they are called to. What does that mean? It, it means that they're really meant to be passionate about preaching the gospel. Mm. In the past, each time he's made new cardinals, and this is the eighth time, they call it a consistory, which means an assembly called by the Pope of the cardinals to make new cardinals. Each time he makes new cardinals, Francis gives a, quite a sharp little homily, and uh, it, the, the same happened this time. It's, he's, he's trying to say to the new cardinals, you know, this isn't a, an honor for yourself. It's not just to raise your status in the society. You, you're here to serve, to serve the people, and you're being called at a greater level, at greater depth to give that service. And so when he gave them the red hat, the scarlet color, means that you are to give your all, even if necessary, to shed your blood for the sake of the gospel. And also, Colleen, I, I would like to recall here that each time that there is this consistory, that's a ceremony in St. Peter's. It's a very simple ceremony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you said in your story it was it was simple and solemn, and that kind of contrasted, at least in my mind, with this this big celebration that was going on. Why is it simple and solemn, and like, how do you mean? It's simple insofar as the actual ceremony is not long. The new cardinals, they process into the church. Each one goes to the Pope, and he gives them three things. He gives them the red beretta and says, you are now committed to even giving your life for the gospel. Then he gives them the ring and he says, the ring, you're basically married to the church, but it's also a symbol of love. And then he gives them a scroll and the scroll is a title to a church in Rome because they now become part of the diocese of Rome. These become now pastors in the diocese of Rome. And so th those are the three things. So it's very simple. And then, uh, of course, people clap when their cardinal goes up and gets the red red and such like. But it it's a very simple ceremony. And it's over quickly. That's so funny to me because you say, you know, the, this hat, a ring, a scroll, like that does not sound simple to me. <laughs> well, th these are gestures that um, people will recognize. I mean, when you go and get married, Colin, as you remember, mm -hmm. you, 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 you were given a ring yeah, yeah. And, and a blessing. Sure, but no scroll. I feel a little left out. Well, you, you signed, you signed <laughs> a, a document. For, yeah. I did sign. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Okay, so, so then what happens? After this ceremony in St. Peter's, traditionally, the new cardinals are located in two areas in the Vatican, some in the Apostolic Palace. This is the Vatican's palace where the Pope lives, where the Secretary of State lives. And one is the audience hall. And they're placed in different locations in those two areas. And people, friends, but also Romans, other people, people like myself, we go and we greet the new cardinals. It's a very nice moment. It's a kind of welcoming the people, the new cardinals, to the diocese of Rome. All right, Jerry. So then 
the day after this consistory on Sunday, Pope Francis kind of very abruptly left town, which uh, which seemed unusual to a lot of Vatican watchers. The Pope went to visit the central Italian city of L'Aquila, which is more than an hour outside Rome. And it's famous in part for being the resting place of Pope Celestine V. He was a monk who kind of unwillingly was made Pope, and then he became the first Pope to voluntarily resign in 1294. And Pope Benedict visited Celestine's tomb back in 2009 and foreshadowed his own later resignation by leaving his his pallium, which we've talked before about. It's a it's like a small skinny stole that is a symbol of authority. He left that on Celestine's tomb. So there were questions going into this about whether Pope Francis would also leave his pallium. We had also talked about how it would be a striking image to see the Pope rolling up to this tomb that is a symbol of papal resignation in a wheelchair. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what what happened when the Pope visited the tomb? What, what did he do? The real reason for him to come to Aquila was that on the 28th of August was the day that Pope Celestine V was, they called it then, enthroned. He was, in, in, in other words, installed in office as Pope. And one of the first acts that Celestine V did was to issue a bull, a decree, granting an indulgence to anyone who visited the church in Aquila on this particular day. So every year on the 28th of August, pilgrims from far and near in Italy come for what they call the Feast of Forgiveness. And tell us how the doors play into this. The door of the church is is closed, and it's opened on this day by usually a delegate of the Pope. In fact, in 728 years, Francis is the first Pope to open this door. Right. I think some of our listeners might remember the year of mercy that Pope Francis did when there was also a a holy door that he opened and then there were doors at churches all around the world that opened. And the idea, if I remember correctly, is that you get an indulgence by, I think, you know, saying certain prayers, going to confession and then walking through the door, right? That's the significance of it being opened. Exactly. Most people will know about a holy year or a jubilee year. Right. This was the precursor of that because Mm -hmm. Celestine's successor, Boniface VIII, Pope Boniface VIII, who actually put Celestine in prison, by the way. Yes. Boniface VIII decided to start a holy year in the year 1300. Francis has called in the year 2016, he had a holy year of mercy. And I remember going to Bangui with him in the Central African Republic, a country then at war. And he decided for the first time in history that the Holy Door, which is normally in St. Peter's, would be opened in Bangui. And that was a really great occasion. This time, we will have a Holy Year in 2025. Right. And as we speak, Colleen, the cardinals who are now meeting in session, we're, prepared, we're on speaking on Tuesday, mm-hmm. they are discussing this holy year, mm-hmm. what to do. Right. What to do around the world. Let's go back to L'Aquila. So he opens the holy door. He, he celebrated Mass in the square in front of the church. So then they wheeled him in the wheelchair to the holy door, which was closed. 
And then the Pope insisted on in getting up and walking. And he took an olive branch, and he, in following tradition, he hit the holy door three times with the olive branch, and then the door was opened from inside for him. And he walked through the holy door, then went back into his wheelchair, and they pushed him to the altar behind which Celestine is buried. And he, you can see there's a glass cage, and he's got a kind of a silver mask on his face, etc. You can see it. And there he sat in the wheelchair, right in front of the tomb of Celestine, and put down his head and prayed for some minutes. Now, remember, John Paul II went there and did nothing, just prayed like Francis. Benedict went there, and instead he walked up to the, to the glass casket and put the stole that he wore on the casket. That was in 2009. Benedict didn't resign until four years later, 2013. Francis made no such gesture. He just prayed, and uh, I, I wondered what went through his head as he prayed. You know, what was he thinking? We don't know. We don't know if he was thinking about resigning himself of following in Celestine's footsteps, although we know that you know he there is this parallel between Celestine being a pope who opened the door of mercy and now Francis doing the same. But the pope did speak about Celestine's resignation in his homily. Can you tell us what he had to say? Yes. Uh, according to tradition, uh, Dante, the famous Italian poet and author. Yeah, he, he put Celestine in the inferno, right? Yes, he put him in the inferno that's in, in hell. Mm -hmm. And he, he spoke about the great refusal. Yes. He, he called it the great refusal because Pope Celestine, after five months, reckoned, I, I really can't do this job. So I, I must go resign and I go back to my monastery. In fact, they put him in prison. But Francis said Dante erroneously described him as the man of the no. Mm -hmm. In other words, the man of the refusal, the abdication. Right. But in fact, he was the man of the yes. Mm -hmm. And this, this, of course, attracted a lot of attention in Italy where Dante is, is, is greatly... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Pope says Dante was wrong. It's, Dante was wrong. It's a big headline. So it's, 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 it was a big headline in many places. But, but the, Francis's point was this, and he went on to develop, and he said, Celestine really showed humility. He wasn't attached to staying in, in power, in, in position, status. This wasn't. He, he was seeking the will of God, and only those who are truly humble will find the will of God, because they put themselves totally dependent on God not on the position they occupy. And this was a message also, it was seen as a message also for the new cardinals, that they've got to be humble. And that message of humility really has a parallel in Pope Francis's latest Curia reform that you and I talked about right before our summer break. It went into effect on June 5th. But the big takeaway from that was that the Pope said that lay people, non-bishops, non-cardinals could lead Vatican dicasteries that in the past had mostly been limited to cardinals holding those roles. So we're seeing kind of a, a change in the role of cardinals and asking them to share power, which requires humility. Uh, and they're actually discussing that very reform right now as we're recording in the Vatican between the cardinals and the Pope. So when we come back from our break, we will talk about that meeting, what we know about it, and what the Cardinals are talking about. Stay with us.
our last story this week, Pope Francis has gathered the world's cardinals for a pretty unusual meeting at which they're studying his new constitution for the Roman Curia, which is the Vatican's central offices. That new constitution went into effect on June 5th, and it made clear that the Vatican's priority is evangelization rather than doctrine. So it, it placed the dicastery for the evangelization of peoples above the Vatican's doctrine office, which for the last several centuries was known as La Suprema, was the supreme office. This meeting is unusual because ordinarily the College of Cardinals really only meets when it's time to elect a new pope, although they did have a meeting together in 2014 ahead of the Synod on the Family to discuss issues facing families around the world. And although we know that the stated purpose of this meeting was to discuss the new reform of the Roman Curia, there's been a lot of discussion about how this meeting is also kind of a rare opportunity for the cardinals to get to know each other ahead of the next conclave, the next time that they'll be together to vote for a pope. So Jerry, you and I are recording this on Tuesday afternoon in Rome while the meeting is still going on. So we may have more recent updates by the time our listeners hear this on Thursday. Those will be at americamagazine.org if our listeners want up-to-date information. But so far, the Vatican has not been super forthcoming with information about this meeting. They put out a one-sentence press release on Monday simply saying that the meeting was happening. So I was wondering if you have heard much more from your sources about what's going on inside. Yes, I've heard from various people. Mm -hmm. The Vatican and its media is not allowed into the meeting. Uh, this is behind closed door meeting, and you've almost got, as I said, almost two hundred of the two hundred and twenty six cardinals, which is the biggest gathering of cardinals in eight years. The last time the Pope brought the cardinals together like this was in two thousand and fourteen to discuss the question of the family before the Synod on the Family. Since then he hasn't done it. And he's done it this time because he has completed one of the tasks given to him on the eve of his election by the cardinals when they gathered in the Vatican before they, they, they went into conclave. One of the tasks they gave him was to reform the Roman Curia. Right. We should say, you know, even though you don't think that the Pope is planning to resign, this is something that people read as as a possible clue that he could be resigning because he has completed this thing he was elected for and is now passing it on to the cardinals. Yes, I, I, I'd never subscribed to that thesis. <laughs> but I think it's important to say. It, it made news. But, but uh, and the fact that he went to Celestin's tomb to pray. They, they put two and two together and people got five. So what's going on inside this meeting? In this meeting, the, the Pope yesterday morning, he addressed the meeting first of all, and he said, look, the cardinals before the conclave, they said this was a task to be done, reform the Roman Curia. Over the past years, since I've been since 2013, I've been focusing on this task. Mm -hmm. I created a council of cardinals to help me to do it. We consulted widely, we consulted with the Roman Curia office, we consulted with Bishop's Conference, and then we finally came up with this document which I produced on the 19th of March of this year. All the cardinals were given a copy of this constitution, they call it a constitution, this document of reform, and they were also given some questions relating to various aspects of it. So the Pope said, now you have this document, I want you to break into groups, small groups, groups of about 10 to 15 people, each group. They discussed the introduction to the document, and then they've discussed various aspects of the document yesterday afternoon 
and again this morning. Jerry, let me ask you, what is the point of them gathering to discuss this? Because it's not like they're being asked to, you know, approve it or come up with their own document like we see in synods or other types of meetings. Well, there are two points here. First of all, this document, it's a reform of the central government of the Catholic Church. So for every diocese in, in the world, the relation between the central office and the local diocese or the bishop's conference has been changed somewhat. The bishops have been given more power on certain questions. And so it also offers a kind of a mirror to the bishops in their diocese and to bishop's conference of how they might remodel their own bureaucratic structures in different countries. Right. And and there's been some talk with this new curia about how the hope is that it will be mirrored in local dioceses, right? This inclusion of lay people in leadership, for example, is something that's expected to trickle down. On this point, there was discussion on was it right of what the Pope did to separate the power of governance from the power of orders. You know, in other words, you're a priest, you're a bishop, etc. You have orders. Should the power of governance be separated from this? Francis has said very clearly in the Constitution, yes. Yeah, but there were some reports in the Italian press that some cardinals were going into this meeting with the Pope planning to resist that. My understanding is that there has been substantially large uh, support for what Francis has done. The, the, the opposition to it has been minority. And secondly, everybody recognizes, in, in, including Francis himself, that the document can be tweaked. And it seems he was taking notes of what people were saying. And so maybe he will fine-tune the document. Now, the second point is, and this, this is very important, uh, the purpose of Francis also is that he wanted these 200 or so cardinals to get to know each other because he's made cardinals not following the traditional pattern uh, which would have meant that many of them already knew each other. Right, and by choosing cardinals from all over the world, he's choosing people who don't really run into each other usually, which is the difference from when you're promoting a lot of Italians, for example. Absolutely. They don't know each other. They don't know how each other thinks. They wouldn't even recognize each other if they passed them on the Via della Conciliazione in the street going up to the Vatican. Right. And this was a problem when, when John Paul II died and Benedict was elected, right? One of the reasons that they chose this this pope who had held a really central position in the Vatican was because he was one of the few that they recognized and knew. Yes. And so th this meeting is to help cardinals get to know each other, get to recognize each other's face, get to talk. They've had opportunities over this week both in social occasions, but also in liturgical occasions, and now in the meeting, to get to know each other. And this is very important in advance of a conclave. So it, it was a, an act of absolute wisdom and good sense to bring them together. So you don't think he's resigning, but you do think he has an eye on the next conclave anyway. Look, Colleen, Francis will be 86 this December. Mm -hmm. He has been, for the last weeks, giving a catechesis on old age, growing old, etc. He's very conscious that, you know, the clock is ticking for him like for everybody else. He realizes he's very unlikely to be Pope in 10 years' time. He is being a prudent pastor. He is, in fact, putting in place good electors, and among them, because from among them will be the Pope, possible candidates. And so, so Francis is really 
he's doing two things with this meeting. He's bringing the cardinals on board to understand well what is the vision that he has implemented in the reform of the Roman Curia and which he believes will enrich the worldwide Catholic Church. And secondly, he is enabling the electors to get to know each other so that when the day comes to elect his successor, they are not strangers one to the other. All right, Jerry, it is an absolute joy to be back to reading the tea leaves with you. Thanks for taking some time out of this busy week to talk with me, and uh, we'll chat with you next week. Thank you, Colleen, and welcome back to our listeners. Inside the Vatican is an America Media podcast. Maggie Van Dorn and Ricardo Da Silva are our producers. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. We had production help this week from Jill Rice and Robert Balasser at the Jesuit Curia Studio in Rome. Our executive producer for audio and video is Sebastian Gomes. If you want to keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Magazine, follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. And you can find all of our coverage at americamagazine.org. While you're there, please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Magazine. It's really easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. That about does it for this week. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dilley. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.